And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. But I'd be on that phone call every single day. I'd be up that guy's yin yang so far with a firecracker, he wouldn't know what hit him from Pfizer. I'd be outside that guy's house. Every time he moved, I'd be saying, where's our vaccines? Change has come to Georgia. Change is coming to America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Lean Tossa podcast. This episode is the first one, our first episode of 2021, and it is, we are going to call it the first episode of season three. So a whole new season, we have a whole new intro, and to go with all that, we have a brand new podcasting crew. I'm Robert Martin, your host. Today I'm going to be joined by Curtis Frick, head of Polling USA, Polling Canada, Polling UK, and Polling Australasia. I'm joined by Alex. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. He's the newest member of our group at at Constituon. Um, he is doing all of our maps, and you can also join. A, uh, we are also joined today by Kyle Hutton, um, map maker extraordinaire. Okay, our first topic for today is Derek Sloan. Earlier today, we're recording this on Monday, um, it was uncovered that um, Derek Sloan had accepted um, donations uh, from from Paul from uh, during his uh, leadership election campaign. A couple hours ago, before we record this podcast, uh, Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party of Canada announced that they were going to begin proceedings to remove Derek Sloan from the party. Uh, Curtis, uh, would you like to explain a little bit more about this and and how this is going to impact the Conservative Party going forward. So, you know, it there had been a giant question mark over whether or not Aaron O'Toole was going to do much about his bluster to do regarding, you know, I'm not Trump of Canada. There's, like, we don't accept, like, far-right extremists in our party as he had been going on for the past couple of days. You know, there had been plenty of people who were questioned whether or not he was actually going to, like, take seriously some of the existing members in his party, namely Derek Sloan, for example, um, who holds not very favorable views um, during the conservative leadership race. He uh, was an open advocate for not being against conversion therapy, for one. Um, you know, he's... I'm trying to remember some of the other things, but... You know, he he may he has made a history of kind of like concerning comments to the general public, effectively. So, um, Erdotul has finally decided to, and I'm wondering if personally this is just a situation where Erdotul has found something on Sloan, for example, and he's making a, an example out of Sloan for you know others that might hold similar views to him, um, and using Sloan as an example by ejecting him from the caucus. Okay, Alex, what do you uh, what do you think about this? Do you think that this is a good decision for the Conservatives? Bad decision? What do you think? Well, it it opens them up for more shenanigans coming from the party's right flank, which could spell disaster for them if it gets out of control. But far right opposition to the Conservative Party hasn't really coalesced around any particular figure right now. Bernier is still running his vanity party while being out of Parliament, and Wexit is gearing up to do something, but none of, none of these groups are coordinating yet, and it's, it's unclear if Sloan could do anything to tip the balance by choosing to join one of these fringe movements caucuses while still sitting in the House of Commons. Yeah, I mean it's um it's gonna be pretty hard to to join a Western Independence Party when you're literally like the cent you're you're like riding representing literally in the center of Ontario. Ontario. Yeah. yeah, like riding like just outside of Toronto. You're like, yeah, I hate those Toronto elites that are like thirty minutes away from my riding. Ah, uh, Kyle. Uh, as oh. someone who lives who lives halfway between Toronto and Montreal, I hate both of them so much. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah. The definition of the Laurentian elite right there. Literally that Laurentian area. Uh, Kyle, what do you think? Do you think, uh, if he if he were to join, say, a Wexit party or Bernier's party, do you think he's successful in that? Do you think he's not successful? What do you think? 
Uh, okay, so let, let's just point out first off that it's no longer the Wexit party. It's now the Maverick party. I don't know what that means. Which means that <laughs> by, by its name alone, its mandate could be broad enough to permit yeah. Derek Sloan to join It's it. like if the Bloc Québécois had a, a, an MP from uh, uh, Arcadie Batters, you know? It, it's technically French-speaking. <laughs> it's near Quebec. It's possible. But uh, I, I don't think... Here, Here's the thing. So... There's going to be a lot of recriminations back and forth between Sloan and the Conservatives because there's talk about how, essentially, uh, while Sloan might not have done due diligence about uh, the donors coming into his campaign, Fromm, who is a neo-Nazi uh, through and through, there's no doubt about that, he's not anything else but a Nazi, uh, did join the Conservative Party under a slightly modified alias. He essentially used his real name, which is Frederick Paul Fromm. Um, and the Conservative Party itself, which is supposed to vet these people, didn't bother to do it. Right? So, obviously, uh, it's not wholly Sloan's fault, as much as I would love it to be. Um, this really did kind of seem a little bit like a bit of a hit job. Um, it's interesting timing, to be sure. But, you know, it, it, it reeks, you know, it kind of reeks of uh, O'Toole trying to, you know, make an example, get some headlines maybe, and just kick it a, a problem in his caucus. Most of the Ontario caucus, the Conservatives don't like Sloan anyways, and they want him out, right? Uh, we've seen that on Twitter. Uh, Eric Duncan, uh, an MP close by to Sloan, um, you know, immediately, right away said, yeah, get rid of him, don't like him here. So, that's fine. Is he going to join the PPC? Um my theory on this is no, because I don't think Bernier would want the competition for his leadership. Um, because if Sloan's the only MP, uh, he's going to get more attention than Bernier is as a person that's out of Parliament, so I don't think that's going to happen. Um, what could happen, though, and hear me out, this is my theory, uh, do you guys know the Christian Heritage Party? <laughs> too unfortunately, well, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to pitch it to Sloan. We can get the Christian Heritage Party in Parliament, okay? And he would do it. He would absolutely 100% do it. And he'd be the perfect fit because they're, you know, they're Christo-fascist. It's a good fit. But, um, but there's, there's one catch. The Christian Heritage Party's base denominationally is reformed Calvinist churches. And uh, Sloan is a Seventh-day Adventist, which, although, like, is part of the conservative Christian mainstream nowadays is still a movement that's theologically far out enough that the kinds of people who vote for the Christian heritage party instead of the conservative party might be a little bit concerned about, about heresy here. Yeah. And (laughs) what I was gonna say, one other interesting aspect to the timing of Sloan getting kicked out is that less than Lewis who was the other social conservative in the conservative leadership race, yeah. um, just recently won her nomination in Haldeman Norfolk, which is a, a fairly safe conservative writing, right? Which, which is something that I was going to raise and say, you know, yeah. they're, they're booting Sloan out of the party, and now they're bringing in Leslin Lewis, and it's like, all right, so you kicked out one person because, like, you happened to get him uh, caught, get in, like, an actual Nazi donated to his campaign, then you have Leslin Lewis, who her views are not exactly far off of Sloan's, if exactly. not being like pretty much a carbon copy to a degree. Yeah, so, so it, you, it's you very know, interesting. going to have that issue of, you know, okay, you just kicked out one like really unfavorable individual in terms of their opinions, and you're bringing in now the other person that ran of that same leadership. Who has that's those exact wants, same though. shitty opinions? Well, that's yeah. what he wants. That's the thing, right? And that well, kind of gets me to my. That gets me a nice question. I'll I'll throw it back to you, Kyle. If the whole point of kicking out Derek Sloan is the fact that okay, we know we have to appeal to suburban, highly educated voters, and Aaron O'Toole does not do that, but yet your slogan is "Take Back Canada" and you're welcoming in social conservatives like Leslie Lewis. How how does that work, right? Like, why is how is that a feasible strategy? Where like it feels like you're trying to say like one thing to some voters and then one thing to another, but the thing you're saying to the suburban voters isn't even really like like it's not even that coherent of an argument because you're like, oh, we we'll kick out the, the egregious examples of it, but then we know we have a bunch of people here that are like 
that that's still supported like when you're welcoming in Leslie Lewis and stuff. So w- what kind of dichotomy is that going to play, Kyle? Uh, it, it, it's, I mean, okay, what I think Ozil is trying to do is he's trying to emulate a little bit of what Harper did, because oftentimes when Harper, especially in the early days when, you know, the parties emerged and he had a few leftover reformers that were, you know, a little, uh, a little kooky, um, he would, he might have them in cabinet or he might have them in position, but then he would slowly sideline them until they weren't there anymore. And then there'd be, you know, some of them for would be have nomination challenges and then they just go away. And, you know, uh, what's uh, O'Toole's decided to do is just, you know, hit the, the eject button and just, you know, boot slow it out and hope that everybody's going to turn their attention to Les and Lewis and be like, oh, that, that'll be fine. Uh, that's how everything has worked. It's a bit of a gamble, especially going into an election season, which we think we're all heading into. Because uh, if you decide to alienate part of your base with a controversial, you know, ejection from your party, you know, it, it's you're playing with fire there, O'Toole. You know, you can say all you want, like, oh, this will get me moderates, but I don't think people are going to be too impressed by this. You know, end of the day, they're not going to be, like, overwhelmingly like, oh, yeah, O'Toole, he's a, he's a true blue moderate. That's fantastic. I don't think anybody's fooled by this. No more than uh, anybody was fooled by Shear's constant uh, aspirations towards moderation in some instances, right? You know? Well, I, I kind of think Shear's, like, only attempt at moderation was just saying, oh, we hate Trudeau and we think he's bad, right? Like, there was no real moderate pitch to, to kind of... Like the, the the suburban bases, right? But when you're starting to look at this conservative party, right? And you mentioned during Harper, there were a lot of suburban members for the conservative party during Harper, right? You had seats like St. Catharines, and just in Ontario, obviously, there's other examples, like in, obviously in Winnipeg. But you had stuff like St. Catharines, you had Milton, you had uh, you had a lot of seats in the York region. O'Toole was, of course, uh, Durham is is. Is suburban. Even Derek Sloan's seat, which was held by a conservative during the the Harper era, was held by a liberal in fifteen. Sloan won it in nineteen, the first time MPP um, MP in, in twenty nineteen. That seat is actually a bit more suburban than people give it credit for. He only did win it by five seats, large riding, but a lot of urban kind of suburban areas packed into that seat. The question, yep. though, is the fact that, and again, like you, you look at in other areas, right? You go up north, you've got Pierre Polyev in, well, not north-ish in Ontario and into the Ottawa region, right? When you're looking at these kind of suburban MPs, the problem is not all of them are like these kind of moderates that they're hoping to attract, right? The last one you had was from Milton. Um, what was her name from Milton? I'm drawing a blank on her name now. Lisa Wright. Lisa Wright, yeah, from Milton, right? Like, she was kind of the picture-perfect moderate of what you wanted, right? Those people were in the party, and a lot of them are gone now. And then the moderates yeah. you're replacing them with are, like, Derek Sloan, O'Toole, not a moderate. My thing, my question is this. Going into the election, what's going to be more of their slogan? Is the slogan, Take Back Canada, or is it trying to be an appeal to to, to suburban voters like we've, we've seen here? My, ge- uh, my guess is that he'll, he'll try to do a suburban pitch but he's going to try to balance out his caucus he's going to try to there's going to be a, a couple of threats from the right you know and he's going to try to balance it out and he's going to he's going to falter on it also he doesn't have that uh what okay one of the keys is uh, success for harper was that he pulled directly from like the mike harris suburban cabinet right he had that jump directly in with him after uh, 2004, and that's how he kind of grew his uh, sort of more moderate suburban caucus. Um, I mean, O'Toole doesn't have that. The, the, there's nobody left. They're all gone. And Doug Ford's people aren't, you know, what I call super, super fantastic uh, or moderate or sane half the time. Um, They're not the best. No. Yeah, as evident by that, they've lost, what, three MPs now? Or MPPs now? Ah, I now, think it's, it's, is it four now? Because now we've it, got York, we got York, um, York South. Yeah. We got the Ottawa Region 1. We got Hillier. And then I thought we had another one. Yeah, we have Carhalios and uh, Cambridge. Yeah, so it's four. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Like, it, it's like, I don't know. So my guess is they try to do the moderate pitch. I just don't think it's going to be successful. They're going to try to do the stupid oh. balancing act. And O'Toole is, uh, Mr. O'Toole, you are no Harper, okay? Well, I'm sorry. And I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll throw, I'll throw on the plus side, if you're, if, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll if throw, you're I'll talking throw. about building about building the moderate bench, there are a lot of BC liberals who are out of the job now. That is true. That's, That's true. a good point. That is true. Well, I'll, I'll, th- I'll throw this next question to Alex here. 
in terms of the uh, in terms of the slogan, right? Because I mean, you in, you do live in in uh, Saskatchewan in, in a rural part of Saskatchewan. In terms of of the, the slogan, right? If, if you're going into the next election, and O'Toole's slogan, well, in, in the leadership was "Take Back Canada," and again, they're facing a challenge from these from from basically Sloan. In, in, in a Sloan-aligned party, right? Even though that's the the Maverick Party, or if it's Bernier's party, if you're worried about fighting those people off, obviously, "Take Back Canada" is the slogan that was kind of meant to get drum up those supporters for him in the Conservative leadership race. But if you don't run on "Take Back Canada," then suddenly you're alienating those voters. But then, if you do, then you're alienating the suburban voters. So, so do you? So, to Alex, to you, do you think that? So if, if he doesn't run on a slogan, that kind of explicitly populist kind of Trumpy pitch to those kind of rural uh, conservative voters, populist conservative voters, do you think they're going to do you think that that the uh, that the kind of third parties can kind of take over like those fringe right wing parties can take over and steal meaningful vote shares and even lo- cause them to lose some seats in, in some of those ridings? Sure. And I, I think the last couple of provincial elections might have given O'Toole more cause to sideline Sloan and his ilk. Because in BC and Saskatchewan, we both saw, we saw the BC Conservatives and the Buffalo Party in Saskatchewan get second place finishes in multiple ridings as minor parties with very little follow, previous following or media traction or anything. Um, but crucially, those second place finishes were not of not of too much concern to the governing center right parties because they were already in the safest, deepest places you could point to on the map. So, although we, so although we saw these unexpected right wing surges like in different places around the West very recently. Neither Buffalo nor the BC Conservatives were able to translate their really strong, virile rural support into anything more than a distant second place finish. And at the federal level, we're we're not seeing we're not seeing Wexit Maverick do do much better in terms of organizing itself. Like we know we know Jay Hill is running the party, but what the like what the hell is its platform going to be? Like who's Who's its candidates? Um, yeah, is it so I matter? think. So I think looking looking at these recent performances, and mostly spurred on by world events across the border, is what's really dictating all this stuff. But I think if, if you're O'Toole, you're looking at this and you're saying, "Okay, we're." Now is the time to start making overtures against the far right elements of this party. If we lose them and they break away, they could be a nuisance, but their base is inefficient. It's in the deepest, most rural areas. It will it will not <clears throat> it will be a minor inconvenience to us. Like Buffalo didn't even run in Saskatoon and Regina. And and in Alberta 2019, the Freedom Conservative Party said it was only going to run in safe rural ridings. But so the, there's one thing you're forgetting. This is the Federal Conservative Party, and they literally were taken over by a small rural party in 1988 that only had like a handful of second place finishes in uh, some rural Alberta ridings, right? <laughs> That's yeah, that's the I mean, calculation things... in the back of their mind, I think. They're still yeah, concerned like, about that. Could... Yeah, things could go off the rails really fast. But for like for now, I think it's it's gonna be keep walking the tightrope. And I've been I was I was thinking about this when you mentioned Lewis. Now I admit um being surrounded by conservative party members for hundreds of miles in every direction. I wasn't paying that much attention to the conservative leadership race, but I had, I had the impression that Lewis was at, that Lewis was more appealing than Sloan. I mean, there's a reason she came third instead of fourth on the first ballot, but I I had the impression she knew, she knew she turned heads as, as a minority. 
And from what I saw of her, she was willing to say like interesting non whiny things about like, like in the, in the heady days of summer, she said, yeah, I, she said, I think systemic racism is a problem in Canada that needs to be addressed. And that's, that's something that Derek Sloan would never say because his entire brand is being a whiny bitch. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I think, I think the, I think part of the calculation here is that Lewis is at least an interesting candidate who is just, who has more potential to bring out interesting parts of the conservative base, while Derek Sloan is strictly the whiny bitch caucus. That's a good name for that. That is. We're going we're, we're to have to look at that in the future. But anyway, um, I think that that's a good topic on that. And I think, again, obviously, as we continue to the Canadian election that – the surprises no one is will ha- is happening. Um, I think we'll we'll be talking a lot more about specifically O'Toole's appeal to suburban base versus O'Toole's appeal to uh, to kind of those those rural areas, and and, and that's going to be very interesting conversations going forward about what he should be doing and, and and what he shouldn't be doing in that regard. So, moving on, we actually the election moving on from the election that is not happening currently to the election that is happening currently. We're going to talk about Newfoundland. So the election was just called a couple days ago. Now, I believe this election actually had to happen. Um, I'll actually check with Kyle on that. Um, this election had to happen, right? Because I believe there is a law that says that so many, so much, so much after a new uh, premier is chosen, there has to be an election. That's correct, right, Kyle? Yeah, it uh, didn't happen, have to happen this quickly. They had about a year to uh to decide it but obviously the new premier andrew fury of the liberal party decided you know now is a good enough time to go probably spurred on by his uh 65 percent uh score in the the recent polls so exactly yeah so going back so looking at the lean toss up model now again these numbers are out of date i don't even remember the last time we specifically updated the newfoundland model I think it was sometime in the in the early stages of the pandemic. Actually, um, we had a forty eight thirty five lead for the Liberal Party. They were just shy of fifty percent of the vote. Uh, that was a crushing majority. They had twenty four seats out of the possible forty. That's four clear of the majority number, and they had a ninety nine point one two percent chance of getting a majority. Um, small percent chance of getting like um, some other. There's some other combinations in there. But like overall, again, very very strong numbers for the for the Newfoundland Liberals there. So going to Kyle now, is this election hello. a <laughs> hello? Is this a done deal? Is this over? Are we oh gosh! And uh... also for for my curiosity, Kyle, is that a a party bylaw or a provincial statute that there has statute. to be an election after a? Yeah, it's a provincial statute. Um, we had the we had this discussion many podcasts ago. Um, originally, I did not think it existed, but then after some quick research, it is in fact a provincial law that after a new premier is sworn in, they have uh, a year to call an election. This is good. Uh, Lean toss up filling in things you didn't learn in in your civics classes. Yeah. In, in I don't know. I, I think it's a fairly recent law. It's coming with a lot within the millennium, essentially. Um, I don't know why. They just they just have it. Um, that would explain a lot about some of the other premiers. So, you know. Um, but uh, it, it, is this a done deal? Well, it's Newfoundland. Um, it's uh, if you know anything about our history in the lean toss up, it's that it's one of these small Atlantic provinces that are are kind of hard to project necessarily all the time. And Newfoundland, I think, was probably our our worst. Actually, no, uh, it was, no, we actually did well in Newfoundland. We actually hit the top line exactly. Okay. Or it was like off by one seat. No, you're thinking PEI. A lot I of people have confused that. Yeah, a lot of people have confused that for a second. People were like, oh, your Newfoundland model was bad. I'm like, no, it was actually like like amazing. We had <laughs> got the same problems, though. It, it's the, the populations in the 40 or so, uh, no, 40 exactly riding, sorry, uh, are low. Uh, a lot of these communities are rural, uh, disconnected from each other. They have different swings for different reasons. Based on something as silly as you know how good was the the fish fishing that year, you know. Um, so is it a sure thing? I, I would not say that. But um, Andrew Fury, who replaced Dwight Ball in um, August last year, uh, is you know at least still relatively popular. 
That could be COVID bounce. We don't know. Uh, could just be the fact that he is a new face. Uh, he was not an MHA before. Um, you know, it's a number of reasons. Again, our last poll was in December, just before Christmas. So we don't know exactly how people are viewing him right now. But that being said, his opposition isn't exactly that great. Um, that would be uh, Chess Crosby of the Progressive Conservatives, who is the son of John Crosby, I think. Is that correct? He's related to the Crosby family, which, if you know, in Newfoundland uh, politics is a very famous family. Um, he uh, kind of fought uh, Dwight Ball to a standstill in 2019, but... Uh, didn't really get over the hump. Uh, and then he also has uh, the New Democrats and Allison Coffin, who were the surprise winners, uh, going up from basically being destroyed to uh, having three seats in the MH, uh, the House of Assembly. Um, and there's no other... Well, there's one other party, but it doesn't matter. There's no Greens. And there's two independents that are just going to kind of hang around. Um, that's not a great opposition coalition to kind of face off against him. Uh, and Fury has been coasting a bit. Uh, he's had a lot of good recent announcements. Uh, obviously, COVID has not affected the Atlanta provinces as much as it has Ontario, Quebec, and all the other mainland provinces. So, you know, uh, we'll kind of see, but I don't expect much to be different for uh, Newfoundland after all is said and done. Okay, so Curtis, you haven't had a chance to talk in a while, so I'll kind of throw the next question here to you. Um, in terms of running an election campaign, right, just in general, say – let's put yourselves in the shoes of the conservative party here, right? You you forced this on this uh, liberal party of New, Newfoundland to, a, to basically a minority, a bare-bones minority. It was a, a seat or so away from a majority, so you, you held them just on that finish line. They replaced their leader. Your leader isn't the most popular – and the impact of COVID, COVID specifically in the Maritimes at large, but also specifically in Newfoundland and Labrador has been very minimal. What do you run on? How do you take down this new liberal government with a brand new face that apparently people kind of like either because it's a new face or just very little corruption attached to it? Um, the short answer, I think, is that you literally just, <laughs> you literally just explained the billion dollar question that the PCs would like to know um, because I don't even think that they can figure that out like here's the thing I think it's very simply the case that you know the progressive conservatives or the NDP to a much lesser degree are like going to get slapped at this election unless it comes out that like Andrew Fury like killed a person in the middle of the street <laughs> <laughs> like I I really think that like the pandemic response in Newfoundland, because, you know, again, uh, cases in Newfoundland are not that bad comparative to other parts of the country. Um, it's like, you know, pandemic is still going to be top of mind. And like, I, you know, not being a resident in Newfoundland, I don't know exactly how the provincial response has been, but clearly it's been going well enough. Um, and I mean, like, here's the thing. If this was in Ontario, and we had, like, relatively low COVID cases. And, you know, the incumbent government was doing a relatively good job, all things considered, right? And I mean, like, not the case, but different discussion. Um, like, it would be hard to figure out how, in Ontario, how the Liberals or the NDP would come out winning that election. Um, coming from, number one, behind by so much against the PC's lead. But it really won't take much for the liberals in Newfoundland to, you know, win the like two seats they need to have a majority government. And not only will they win those two seats based off the polling that we have had, which, you know, the last poll had something like a 43 point lead for the liberals over the PCs. Um, like, it's hard to see how the PCs are able to turn that around, like anything short of a miracle at this point. It really is that, because the PCs were, uh, I mean, here's the thing, the PCs were polling very close to Liberals, if not ahead of them, prior to the 2019 election. Since 2019, uh, they've been nowhere close to Liberals uh, for some reason, and it's only gotten worse since Andrew Fury uh, got in charge, you know? So, um, 
I don't know, like, again, things can change on a dime for a uh, campaign, but Chess Crosby is not the most um, charismatic campaigner. Alison Coffin is. I love Alison Coffin. I hope she actually wins more seats, but um, and this is a brand new, fresh face, and Chess Crosby is just kind of there because nobody liked Dwight Ball that much, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, I don't see a way for the PCs to kind of climb out of this. They might get back to 30%, you know, that'll be good for them. Yeah, and I mean, and and that's the thing. Curtis brings up the really good, interesting point of Ontario. And uh, earlier today, uh, Keto Maggie, uh, CEO of Main Street, he he teased out that we're going to get some Ontario numbers. And I'm actually really fascinated to see those Ontario numbers because again, it's that same dichotomy, right? I mean, Ontario is a much more of a of a three horse race rather than in in Newfoundland when you get a, a two horse race. Um, but again, I, I really kind of want to see the difference where if we're starting to see b- kind of bad COVID management affecting the, the incumbent numbers, right? And at the same time in Newfoundland, right, like you have, I mean, it's a pretty, like liberals can really kind of basically chalk up the margins there. They can rack up those margins. And the problem is when you have good COVID management, lockdowns aren't happening, businesses are open, schools are open, etc., suddenly people are kind of like, hey, I kind of like the incumbent party. I'm not going to vote them out, right? And and I think that's a huge problem if you're trying to run against them. And I, 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 I agree completely with, like in Ontario, you can carve it out, right? You can kind of question certain decisions a lot more. You can be like, I don't, this shouldn't have been this way. This shouldn't have been this way. But when everything's working, it's it's really hard to be kind of, be at the back of that bus being like, oh, no, this, this sucks, right? It, it, it's really difficult. And that is not envious at all for the for the um, for the for the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador PC party. Say it like uh and I don't know if Alex wants to jump in on here um as well, but I was just gonna say like I, I wouldn't be surprised if liberals basically swept all of the uh the island seats outside of the Avalon Peninsula. You know? Well uh, see that's that's something I was I was going to bring up because when I am, I am kind of fascinated. When you look at Newfoundland's political map, you have the the Liberals sweeping all the rurals, yeah. the 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 Conservative strength being concentrated exclusively in the suburbs of Saint John's, not the not the countryside, and then you have a little city center where the NDP can break through and the Liberals can compete against them but the the thing the thing that strikes me about this setup is that it's so nostalgic like it looks like it looks like a u.s political map from like 50 years ago when when there were still rural democrats and like the most solid republican areas were the the little were the inner ring suburbs and nowhere else so my my question is and i i i know i know this it's I know already that politics in the Atlantic provinces is more non-ideological than other parts of North America. But but Newfoundland's map is almost so retro. I want to ask, do you do you think Newfoundland and Labrador is the least realigned place in the yes. entire western world? Yes it is, absolutely. A hundred percent. It is hilariously how static its politics has been for so many years. Um, so we'll get too deep into this because we have other issues to get to. But essentially, the uh, as Alex just pointed out, you know, the conservatives are kind of like clustered around St. John's and the Avalon Peninsula, and liberals rump through the the center of the island and up into the Labrador. Right. This is because it's Catholics versus Protestants, and uh, people that voted against the referendum versus uh, pro-referendum, uh, or however else Joey Smallwood um, decided to to rig that back in the day. Um, you know, so it, it's it's really bizarre. It's a strange place, and it might be changing ever so slowly because it never used to be an NDP party, right? Uh, in St. John's, and but St. John's has grown, and now the NDP are there and they're hanging out. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it is the most, easily the most, uh, not like, it's just, it's, it's always, it's forever. It is eternally Newfoundland, um, it is bizarre. Uh, we even saw this in 2011, 
uh, with the federal race where the liberals still managed to win Newfoundland because they had all those rural seats. It was really funny, and I just, yeah. It's my favorite fact about Newfoundland. It's so weird. Yeah, and that's that's something we're definitely going to be looking at on the expected election night, Canadian election night 2021. We'll be looking at those seats because the Liberals actually did suffer swings in some of those rural Newfoundland ridings. So that's something definitely to look at in in the next federal Canadian election. And also in this election, too, maybe we start to see, like, if we see shifts to the Liberals, maybe we see lesser shifts to the Liberals in some of those rural, like, just the, any looking for any kind of sign of that realignment. Of course, when we start getting more polls, and, and even after we get election results for Newfoundland, we'll be able to kind of dive into that. But our final topic for today, we're going to look at U.S. polling. Um most specifically, it's going to be kind of a broader topic about U.S. polling, but we're specifically going to look at the most recent polls coming from Trump's approval ratings in the wake of the um, the, the terrorist mob basically trying to overthrow the, and, and occupy the Capitol. So we've now uh, we've had a new kind of round of polling from some of the top pollsters. We're going to focus on three pollsters specifically in their newest Trump approval rating polls. The reason why we're going to focus on those is is going to be unveiled in a segment. We're going to focus specifically on Washington Post, CNN, and Quinnipiac. Now, after, in the wake of the attacks on the Capitol, um, all three have released polls that have Trump's approval rating very low, kind of at one of the lowest of his term, if not the lowest of his term. But we're going to focus specifically on one set of numbers. That is his approval ratings with white college voters. Now, this is not Republican, Democratic white college voters. It's just all white college voters in general. So the Washington Post number for Trump with white college voters, 36 approve, 63% disapprove. CNN, that's 31 approve. Um, 64 disapprove, and with Quinnipiac, that's 28 approve, 66 disapprove. Now, I would like to highlight the, now we're going to look at their general election poll numbers from those three pollsters. So this is Trump's support, Trump and Biden's support, with white college voters going into November 3rd. Slight caveat, though, Washington Post numbers, their most recent election poll, these for all three of these, these are their most recent election poll before November 3rd. Washington Post, the most recent national they did was October 11th. Um, there was no there was no national release. After that, they had released a bunch of state polls, but going through it, the state polls were not that much out of whack with what this national number is saying. So I'm not the most... It's not the most... It's not like that recent compared to, to this PIAC and CNN, but it's not wildly different from what their final polls were saying. But anyway... Washington Post for white college voters, Trump 32%, Biden 63%. For CNN, Trump 40%, Biden 58%. And for Quinnipiac, Trump at 33%, Biden at 61% with white, with white college voters. Now, exit polls. We have two exits of exit polls here with Fox News and the AP VoteCast. The AP VoteCast didn't explicitly break it down by white college, white non-college. They broke it down by white college white college male, white college female. I kind of aggregate them to get together to get these numbers, but these numbers are basically identical to Fox. Fox says Trump won 46% of white college voters, Biden won 52. The AP vote cast says 40, oh, Trump won 46.8% of white college voters, Trump, uh, Biden won 53. So you're looking at a massive, a massive difference between pre-election polling on white college voters compared to the exit polls, which again, nothing in the precinct data suggests that those exit polls are wrong. They definitely suggest that the pre-election polls are wrong. But now suddenly, now that we are post-attack on the Capitol, suddenly Trump's approval rating look exactly like his uh, support with white college voters right before the election. So let's discuss this. What do we think is happening here? I'm going to pass it off to Curtis. Curtis, do you believe these numbers or do you think that these numbers are kind of facing the same kind of error that we saw um, during the election? Um, well, you know, when it comes to American polling numbers, I would say that we're all just a little bit gun shy with them, to say the least. Um, but I would argue personally that at least with the approval polling numbers, that they are probably correct. The thing that I would point to is that the approval floor for Trump is roughly in and around where we all kind of agree that his floor is that like bare bones, like 30, 31% kind of idea. So, you know, if we were getting numbers 
that were down in like the low 20s, then I might be a little bit more skeptical of it. Like, it's entirely possible, but I would be more skeptical if it was that case. But it's just the fact that those approval numbers are roughly where I'd expect like all of Trump's support outside of his diehard base have just like left him. And that's what you're left with. And after the Capitol riot slash domestic terrorism incident, um, I think I think that's effectively what you're seeing. Okay, so that's one person saying that they they believe the approval rating polls. Alex, what do you say? Do you do you believe the approval rating polls, or do you not believe the approval rating polls? I have the luxury of not being a U.S. poll watcher. My going assumption is that nothing in the U.S. will ever change from this point onwards. I think the current approval polls are still suffering from the same problems as the pre-election ones, and nothing Trump has done will get anything more than a noisy minority of his party. Like, oh, okay, maybe this is too far this time. Okay. Uh, Kyle, are you going to press X to doubt these uh, approval rating polls? Yeah, yeah, I fucking am, actually, 100%. Like, uh, 100%. Like, listen, we know that the polls, as they are, are missing a huge chunk of voters that are just, they're not responding to them. Why they're not responding to them could be varied. They just don't want to answer polls because they think they're all, you know, part of the satanic cabal or whatever, or they just don't want to give their opinion. They could be shy Trump voters. Whatever reason you think, there's just a ton of them out there, and they're not capturing that opinion. That is pretty clear. That's not to say there isn't a shift among educated white voters and minority voters that do answer these phone calls. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there has definitely been a shift in their opinion of Trump, but the rural white evangelical voters that do not respond to these polls... They still love Trump. They are currently trying to f- march their way to state capitals right now to show how much they love Trump. In fact, yeah, and 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 that's the thing. I'm I'm a thousand percent doubting these numbers. Right to me, it is it is screaming alarm bells that these Trump approval numbers in the wake of the attacks on the Capitol are almost like mirror images, like the exact same numbers we saw Trump doing against Biden before the election, that just sends off all kinds of alarm bells considering the fact that that was a that was polling error was generously three months ago. That's not even yeah. true. That's generously three months ago. And the fact is, we know we know pollsters are not the greatest at correcting errors, even in the long term. Well, they, they generally correct them in the long term, but it's been three months. And like we haven't heard a peep about them, about like this is how we're fixing our methodology. So if you don't change your methodology... And then suddenly you start getting the same numbers you got before, then I really don't doubt these numbers. And I think that is now showing an even more scary thing about the U.S. Where I, I think a lot of people have been like, oh, cool, people didn't like what Trump did. That's good. But I don't think you can tr- – I can't trust these numbers. I, I honestly can't. Yeah. And especially – like here's the thing. If it was like you have numbers that are similar – like, and I agree with you. I, I completely believe that there has been a shift with white with white college voters. Maybe it's not – maybe Trump – if it, if there's an election today, maybe Trump wouldn't get 46% of the white college vote. Maybe he'd get 43 or 42, maybe even 40. But he's not in the low 30s with it though. And that's a huge difference. And the fact is that even then, like sure, maybe Biden wins this – maybe an election was held – tomorrow Biden wins by seven points instead of the four and a half he won right but like the fact that it's still like that like basically an insurrection and then literally it's like yeah okay that's still fine like that is a terrifying polling statistic that I think is not being talked about enough and again if it was a different tab right if it was like okay well if the numbers look if if all across the board, the numbers look different than what we saw before the election. I'd be like, sure, that's that's plausible, but it's not. And I, I don't believe that we're seeing, like, when the white non-college voters haven't moved, and it's just a massive shift between the white college voters, between where they were in election day to where they are now, I'm really doubting that. And I think I, that... I agree. Yeah. I, I think that it's a very... It is a very... It's not good... And and I mean obviously you're right. We we know that there are segments of the po- that the polls are missing, and I think that there is really something here with these white college voters that 
pollsters are missing, whether or not these are people who, like, yeah, maybe they believe that the pollsters are part of this weird cabal thing, right? Maybe it, maybe it's that. But the thing is, these are people who are supposed to have college degrees, right? These are people who went to university or in the U.S. college or a trade college or something, and they're they're believing in, in – they believe – they don't trust – they have that little trust in public institutions. Like, that is – that is really scary, and it, it makes it really question if there's just a if you just take whatever the public poll says and just add a couple points to Republicans, and that's that's kind of where you are. Curtis, why do you think that the U.S. pollsters are missing a certain segment of the of the population? Do you think that they're just kind of worried about, um, or are they kind of, are why are they missing these shy Trump voters? Do you think it's it's something intentional? Like, do you think they're just not responding to pollsters? What do you think? If I had to take my best guess, and for the record, I mean, like, I was one of these people who during the 2020 election was of the mind of, you know, there's there's no shy Trump voter. You're either, like, openly a Trump supporter at this point, or you're not, right? Like, and when I say that you're not, it means that, like, you're just not a Trump supporter. I was wrong, as I think a lot of people were. Like, I thought that if there was going to be a shy Trump effect kind of idea, that it was going to be much less than it was in 2016. But that proved to be very fucking wrong. Uh, so I think it is very simply, like, either they're not answering their phones, which in fairness could go for either side of the political spectrum. Um, or what I think is more likely is just you're still getting people who are not continuing to be open about the fact that they support Trump. Especially when, like, this capital insurrection happens. Like, I don't think that you're going to have a lot of people who are like, yeah, I support Trump after he literally has supporters try to fucking do a coup in the Capitol build, <laughs> try to take and live stream the assassinations of fucking members of Congress. Like, even if you're a Trump supporter, there's probably like a portion of Trump supporters that are like, yeah, that's probably a little too far. <laughs> right. So, I think that there is still very much like a shy Trump effect. And whether that's just like a shy Republican effect later on, I think lessens some. But I think that Republicans as a whole are going to be much harder to actually get an accurate gauge on going forward. Well, I, I, I agree with, with that part, right? I mean, I, I think that there are Republicans that they've lost. They have lost some people in the last few weeks. Now, the question is, well, specifically last week, I, I think the question, though, is is this, are those Republicans who were like, well, I don't like Trump, were they like Biden-Purdue voters? Did they lose a bunch of Biden-Purdue voters? Did they lose a bunch of, like, um, like people like that, like, basically Biden-Cornyn voters? Did they lose a bunch of, like, did, did those people finally say, okay, enough with this party? Probably some Trump voters, like probably some Trump Purdue and Trump Cornyn voters, suburban voters like that, that probably they have lost too, that were kind of like, well, Trump did some weird things, but he was still kind of constrained by the GOP, and that was kind of fine, but I draw the line at insurrection. Probably some people like that. But at the same time, though, I can't trust these public polling numbers. Because if you make a mistake, and then it's very clear that that those numbers were wrong. And then two months later, you're trying to show me those exact same numbers. I am really skeptical of that. I mean, you hit on it very interesting there when you said that there are no real, you thought there was no real shy Trump voters, that people who are supporters of Trump are very kind of open and, and expressive about that. And that's very true. I think that um, in general, they're not, they aren't really shy. They're kind of out there. The thing, though, is when you're looking at ways to analyze that, I think you have to be able to look at this. And like, in turn, and when we say shy Trump voters, we have to mean by polling shy Trump voters. Like, why are they shy to pollsters and not coming through to pollsters? I think you'd ask them on the street, fairly sure they'd be like, yeah, Trump's the best. He's going to drain the swamp or something like that, right? But when the second a pollster calls them, they're not in there, right? Like, when pollsters are waiting for this, they are missing a huge sample, specifically of white college voters, of of Southern Trump voters, or specifically white college voters that are acting like Southern white college voters, right? So, the question is, why are they missing that? And I, I, I don't have a, a good answer for it yet. We're gonna It's going to need a lot more polling, deep dives. But until then, I'm not writing off 
a massive segment of the Republican Party. And again, we are in currently January. Biden has not taken office yet. He will in hours from now. I think by the t- maybe by the time you read this podcast, Biden may, may or may not be the president. It depends on when we get this episode out finally. But, I mean, we're going to get Biden approval ratings soon, right? We're going to get Biden approval ratings soon Soon after that, probably probably before the 100 days, probably at the 50-day mark, maybe a month into office, we're going to get a generic congressional ballot poll, right? The second there's a, there's a meaningful vote in the House, we're going to get a generic ballot poll. We need to trust those numbers. Members of Congress need to trust those numbers, right? I mean, like I think the, the thing is, at the end of the day, the members of Congress were surprised at how well Republicans did, right? I mean, you have um, you know, members of Congress who thought they were done. You had members of Congress who thought they were going to win by half the margin that they ended up winning by, right? Like, and, and this is the thing. We need to be able to trust that data because if suddenly people are like, oh, yeah, we love the, the new health care bill for Biden, and then secretly they just get destroyed in the midterms, that's bad. Like, that is a failure of public polling. And we need to figure out why those people are not responding to polls or, or not or lying. I don't think they're lying to pollsters. I just think they're not responding to them. We need to figure out why pollsters are weighing it wrong. Kyle, if you want to get in yeah, on that. Yeah, I was going to say, like, here's the thing. It, like we saw with Georgia and the runoffs, it really could be that after Trump is gone, and he is going, he's not going to be on a ballot anytime soon. Um, it could be these people just stop voting and polls suddenly return to being accurate, you know? <laughs> or, ideally, in a, a proper world, um, you know, the Democrats have the same sort of turnout effort like they actually do have in Georgia, but everywhere else, so the polls aren't actually, you know, screwed up because pollsters can't figure out, you know, where the actual voters are, right? Well, one thing I will, um, one thing I will say about Georgia is okay. that it wasn't so much not Trump voters not turning out. I mean, he actually got them to turn out in kind of historic proportions in the rural areas for the election, right? I mean, the thing is, we talk about how turnout was down, but in those rural areas, turnout's always down the second you get off a prez year. The second you even get to a midterm year, the turnout in those areas is lower, right? So I'm not even... Like, I I know a lot of people are rushing to blame Trump for it, and and there is blame to be given to the Trump administration in general, for it and, and to Trump for certain degrees, but I, I really don't. I'm not willing to like convict him of of tor- torpedoing the GOP's chances because he wasn't on the ballot there. I mean, they actually had pretty good turnout in the rurals. It's just the fact that the suburban areas are and suburban and urban areas had much higher turnout and they're better for the Dems. Now, whether or not that is a new state turnout machine that's been driven and completely created by Stacey Abrams, whether or not it's that, whether it's not the fact that generally, as we see all across the U.S. in that the second you get to an off year or a special election, suddenly suburban and white college voter voter turnout spikes could be that. There's a lot of things it could be. We're going to start seeing this soon. We're going to have a bunch of House special elections. Um, We may have one to fill the the New York 22nd. Um, We're going to get Virginia. We're going to get a ton of specials. Stuff just happens usually. Um, A senator could, like, who knows, right? Like, a senator could end up resigning for whatever, right? I I don't know anything. This is not, we're not doing libel here, don't worry. But, like, things happen, right? Senators retire. Like, there can always be an election. There's always going to be elections in the next year, right? And we're going to get Virginia Gov. We're going to get New Jersey Gov, right? So there's a lot to look at this, and then we're going to start seeing a lot more. But honestly, like, yeah, it will be interesting if the second Trump is gone. Is Trump going to fade from public office? I mean, he doesn't have Twitter. I doubt they're going to let him back on Twitter anytime soon. No, they won't. I, I very much doubt they will. Um, will he? I mean, the thing is, he he's probably going to, in, as as a private citizen, he's probably going to try to sue Twitter to get himself back on. Um, I'd imagine. I mean, he's going to face legal problems. That's basically a given. That's external from Twitter. Obviously, is he going to fade away? Is he going to be out there on Fox? Is he going to create his own TV network? Like, what's he going to be doing? the second he's out of the Oval Office, right? And I th- that that's going to be really important as to, to figure out whether or not he can keep those bo- mo- voters motivated. Because currently, and I think that's kind of what we see in the runoffs, is that Kelly Loeffler, a millionaire who is married to the person who owns the New York Stock Exchange, and David Perdue, who is also very rich, it turns out they were very bad at turning out rural whites. Who could have guessed, right? Like, this but, is the but thing. Here's the thing. But here's the thing. Like, um... One thing that I think is important to 
look at is that we look at the turnout differentials in Georgia between November and the runoffs, the Trumpiest area, which is North Georgia, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene country, as I like to call it right now, that area dropped tremendously the second Trump was off the ballot. It dropped even more than the other areas of Georgia did, comparatively. Other rural areas of Georgia, like in South Georgia, etc. Right? I think there is a serious, serious thing going on with Republicans where if they don't have Trump on the ballot, those people are just going to go. And if, let's say, Trump creates his own TV channel or finds some other way to stay relevant, um, after all this shit that's been happening, I'm not sure if we're supposed to swear, you may that. after all of that's happened, uh, you think Trump's really going to go to bat for the Republicans right now? He's going to go to bat for all these Republican uh, Senate candidates that betrayed him? I don't think so. I think it's just going to get worse, if anything. Uh, either they're just not going to vote, or they're going to vote against Republicans actively if Trump really finds a way to build up that brand again. Uh, my take on it is that we're going to see Trump kind of coming out for ones that will support him. He's probably going to try to remake the party in his own image, right? He's going to support people who he knows will support him, and people who didn't vote to certify the election are going to be tar- like people who voted to certify the election on the GOP side. They're going to be targets. And the people who didn't are going to be his friends, right? So he's going to – he already has house half the House set up for a primary. Like half the House Republicans are set up for now to primary them. Massive amount of the Senate. Like that's going to be starting with like Rubio and all those, right? Like he can – and like like there's a lot of people he can start trying to target in, in primaries and stuff. And the question is will it work? And I mean how committed is he, right? I mean he was – he was getting he's he's up there in age right he's not he's not a young man right is he gonna really hit the road and do like a hundred rallies for a house candidate is he gonna go to like wyoming to gin up support for the person primarying liz cheney is he like does trump going to wyoming sound like anything that would happen like he doesn't go to wyoming like this is the thing so like there's a lot of questions about this, and and you also hit on the interesting part though about North Georgia, and that is also very concerning when you look at educational attainment. North Georgia obviously not great, but again, not that much worse than other areas that had a lower that that had a, a much higher turnout rate than than North Georgia corridor, right? So, I mean, maybe that's the QAnon corridor of Georgia, and they really thought that the election was stolen from them, right? So, like, it's really hard to say. Um, it definitely seems like it was more severe in that corner than would have been projected from the from the basically from a from a just a turnout standpoint. If you just have less white college white non college voters turning out, you would have expected it to be a bit more uniform between that and downstate areas that are better for Republicans. But it was a bloodbath up there, so that is a really important question. And I think the question is: Is it that Trump wasn't on the ballot, or is the fact? And I think the other half of that question is going to be. Is it Trump not on the ballot, or is the fact that they just can't appeal to those voters that like Purdue and Loeffler, two rich people from Atlanta, they just really don't appeal to rural Georgians? I mean, they could try to appeal through ads, but it just doesn't work. And I think that's going to be really the the important question as to whether or not it's Trump or just being able to appeal to those voters that's actually saving the day in terms of turnout. Anybody else have anything else to add before we uh, before we we all head out of the here tonight? It happens post inauguration. Some some stuff went down. Uh, you know what? What a wild time, guys! What a wild what a, time! What a wild time! What a what a beautiful way for American democracy to go out in a bang. Hopefully not. Or or rise up from the ashes like a phoenix. I mean, um, we don't know. Actually, I was okay. I was asked. I'm gonna to go. I'm gonna go with going out with a bang. Actually, <laughs> I was I was I was asked the other day. They they swear Harrison earlier as VP, right? Uh, I don't uh, know. Don't. I don't think so. I know she resigned her Senate seat. That's all. No, because I thought that because wasn't it before that? Because if something, I mean, obviously, God forbid, if something were to happen to Biden, I think Harris is sworn in like an hour earlier, so that she instantly becomes president, right? Uh, that's not right. I'm trying to remember if there's a know. picture of Biden at the Obama inauguration being sworn in. Actually, I think there is. That sounds familiar to me now. <laughs> No, that sounds familiar. A picture of Biden with Jill Biden standing behind him on that podium there in 2000. That sounds familiar. So that actually might be it, right? Then they might they might be swearing in Harris like minutes before. So, huh? 
Well, I mean, we have to trust the U.S. National Guard and hope that there aren't traitors in the U.S. National Guard, which should generally not be a concern, but apparently national security sources are saying it is. So, yeah, <laughs> that's that's where we are now. Good luck, American friends. Good luck. Hopefully you will... Uh... It's so insane how this is like a three-step election. Like in Canada, we dissolve it like a month later. They come back in and it's done. Same as the U.K., right? In the U.S., it's like, no, no, no. Yeah. There's like so many levels to this. There's like the state vote, then the state has to certify, then they have to send the, like, then they have to do this electoral college vote, then they have to certify that, and then... The world's dumbest democracy is also the world's most redundant democracy. (laughs) Well, like, if you look back on time, it makes sense, right? Because, like, back in the, like, in in the 1800s, right, it would have been like, oh, cool, okay, we had this vote, and then in the state capital, we counted all the ballots, and we figured out this guy won, so then we put the electoral college votes in a box, and then we sent away in a we sent our fastest horse to Washington to, to give them the results. And that makes sense, but we don't need to do that anymore because they send them in planes. So I don't know. It's just, they could have optimized this, but I think they could have optimized this probably sometime in the sixties or the seventies. And I think either they just didn't want to, or I don't know, maybe someone just like someone, a really old Senator just really liked the the pageantry and that person's dead now. So, (laughs) Oh well, that's about it. All right, well then that's that's it. That is the first episode from season three for us. Um, we'll be back kind of sparingly. We used to do these kind of once a week. Um, obviously, if there's a, if there's a Canadian election, obviously we'll start picking up the pace with these a bit more. But I think um, if there isn't, um, we'll be doing these kind of every two weeks or so. A lot of projects from us coming out in 2021. So you're definitely going to want to keep posted, follow us on Twitter, um, follow us on all of our ads. Um, you can follow me at Robert LT. You can follow the site account at lean toss up. Uh, you could follow Curtis at polling USA at polling Canada at polling UK at polling Australasia. Uh, you can follow Kyle at, at Kyle J Hutton. Correct. That's me. Yep. And then you could follow um, uh, Alex at at Kastituan, at K S I T U A N exactly as it's pronounced. No, no way you could possibly confuse those letters. That is correct. All right. Well, that is that is it for us uh, on this uh, this week in January. And uh, yeah, have a good day, and uh, we'll see you guys soon. Stay safe.